This is the Investor Frame Podcast with me, Paul Sparks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Investor Frame Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Sparks. And on this show, we ask successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs to share their stories so we can learn from their experiences and get closer to the things that we want in life. Uh, today, I'm here with Mike Kehoe. He is a, a new friend of mine and a, a new Whale Club member. He's here to talk a little bit about his journey in entrepreneurship. He was a, a career sales guy and then got married and realized that's not something he wanted to do. So for the last 10 years, he's been doing all sorts of cool entrepreneurial ventures, some, some stuff in the fintech world. Now he does uh, a whole bunch of stuff in real estate with his uh, partner, Tim. They invest in the Raleigh, North Carolina market and uh, are doing all sorts of wholesaling and things like this. And so I'm excited to have Mike share his story because uh, he is learning the solvable problem and all this stuff right now. But, you know, he's been living a lot of these these things for the last 10 years. So anyways, welcome in, Mike. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to this. So why don't we start off like we start off every uh, call with a six word update? Yeah, cool. Uh, so my six word update is also going to be my, the assignment that we had in the whale club, but it's going to be, uh, create your rules or expect chaos. Ooh, create your rules or expect <laughs> chaos. Well, we'll yeah. expand on it a little later today, but like, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, man. So I get into, in my entrepreneurial journey, um, you know, early on, and I'd say the first half. Like I would get into situations, get into businesses and not have any rules in place. You know, I always have a partner in every business that I have. Um, and if you don't create rules and, and put those in place beforehand and set expectations up front, it's absolutely chaotic. The business just kind of morphs into its own thing, has its own life, and it becomes something that you don't even want to be a part of anymore. And it's just absolutely draining. And so um, that's just an example from the business front. And then I need to do that on, you know, from personal front as well. Um, you know, I have to operate myself, my life based off of being, you know, having my set disciplines, you know, starting my day a certain way in order for me to be successful. So I struggle with that too, you know, just taking off into business or taking off into something. And my gut is, has always been, well, let's just do it. Let's give it a shot. You know, and you just start yeah. doing things and trying to make up the rules along the way. Why do you think that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that? Oh, man. I, I mean, I think a lot of us just aren't good at like gathering the data on the front end. Right. That's not something that we're super interested in. it. And, and I've heard you say, like, you just want it now. Like, I want the information and I just want to run with it. And that's kind of what I do, you know, like, I'm like, oh, wow, this seems like a great idea. And when I work with people that are like the data gatherers uh, more intentional in the past and they're slow, it just bothers the hell out of me. You know, it's just like it has in the past. It's like, I'm like, why don't you get what I see here? And, you know, why don't you just want to move as fast as me? Um, but now I totally understand because I've been doing this for 10 years. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just anytime I haven't done that and I've just jumped right in most of the time, it just isn't successful. Hmm. And how does this play in with some of the rules that we define up front? And I know that you know, you're, you're reading this book or you've already read Rigging the Game mm -hmm. and Dan calls mm -hmm. this the, the commissioner frame, you know, and it's like 
Yeah. We, we have to think of ourselves as the commissioners of our own league, you know, and in order to play a game, the commissioner has to set the rules and it doesn't make much sense to just start making the rules up as you go. So are you comfortable sharing maybe some of the rules that you set in place to avoid creating this chaos? Yeah. So, I mean, there's like little micro stories within the business as well. So I can look at it from like on a high level and look at the business and how we set our rules there. But then we also have rules when we go to hire someone and those types of things. So there's rules all throughout, you know, the different parts of the organization. A good example of like, we just transitioned one of our acquisitions managers to the territory manager role, which is a, um, which is an upgrade for him. And we historically, we've tried a position, a new position with him before, and he needs all of the data to feel comfortable. He needs all the rules set up front to feel comfortable. And most employees do, um, of course, right? Um, and historically, what we did is we just said, okay, this is going to be your new position. You need to hit these goals. And they were just like one goal, you know, like a revenue goal. Um, now go for it. And we got super dissatisfied. Um, he was not happy in the role. Like it just didn't work out. And so this time after reading the book, joining the group, you know, we're doing things differently. We're, we're, we're making sure everything that is, everything is dialed in. So, you know, one of them is have a trial period up front, you know, like have a 90 to 120 day trial period up front. They're like going to say like, you know, we're going to try this out. This is the role description. This is, these are the responsibilities. These are the KPIs. Just give him all the details that he absolutely needs that we took a ton of time, you know, spend a ton of time creating um, and then say, hey, you know, this is a trial and there's going to be trial compensation during this period. Um, and, you know, it couldn't, it might not work. You know, we had to define success. So define success as well. Um, and then if it doesn't work, we're just going to have to go right back to, you know, your old position. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, those are a couple of the rules that we have. Um, and just no roles, responsibilities, you know, um, those types of things. Well, what you said is, uh, cause there's a lot of rules, right? And when you look and you, you know, when you zoom out and you look at your business, there's rules around like, do I work on Sundays? Am I going to, uh, make trade-offs in certain areas of my life for money, right? Well, how does this rank in terms of, well, how much time am I going to spend with my family? How much attention can I give to my friends? You know, I've found that as I've, I've gotten more into this entrepreneurial journey. I have less and less time to spend with my friends. Well, that's a trade-off that like, are you defining that up front or are you just letting the business like define you and the things that you've done? So, you know, it, it, at a big picture, it makes sense, but then you zoom in on a very individual, you know, thing like hiring somebody or promoting somebody into a different position, and you still got to define the rules. And this is where that framework of case comes in, right? It, it makes sense on a small level. And then when you zoom back, it also makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, and then like you said, on the personal side, I just, I, I've struggled with that historically. So I'm working on setting those rules in place on the personal side. So I always, think about my first, I'm always thinking about business, my mind never stops. And so when I, I've, I've, you know, really thought about the rules for my business, but I need to do that on the personal front too. Yeah. Well, we, we just jumped right into it, which I love, but let's back up for just a <laughs> second. And I want to hear more uh, about 
your background. I know you live in Chicago. I know you've done some cool stuff in fintech and sold some, you know, parts of your company, which you've done pretty well mm-hmm. on. And now you've got a, a business. So tell me a little bit about that journey from, you know, how you got into this and your entrepreneurial, you know, ventures. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, I was a salesperson, you know, career salesperson after college. I didn't have, like, I was a terrible academic, so I'm not smart at all from an academic standpoint. You know, I did not get good grades at all in college and high school. And, you know, I just never remember getting good grades. It was always a struggle for me. Um, but after college, uh, I went into, I had, was good at an interview, in a sales interview, and I had a decent personality. So I just, you know, went into sales. Um, and uh, so I worked for a number of companies, probably six companies within like three to five years or something like that in sales roles could never hold a job. I just hadn't, didn't have passion for it whatsoever. Um, but always at the same time, trying different entrepreneurial things. Like I had a photo booth company that was like probably my first company. We did photo booths for weddings and stuff like that. And then um, uh, I finally found something that I saw could generate residual income which was credit card processing and merchant services. Um, and I had read Rich Dad Poor Dad, of course, like everybody else. Um, and so I felt like that was my first step in the journey. Um, and so I had a friend that was super successful in business already. And I would always bring him ideas and he would always say yes, no, you know, whether he'd want to partner with me on it. And this one he was really interested in. Um, and so I uh, quit my job the day after our honeymoon, my wife and my honeymoon, uh, when I was 26 and, uh, just started from there, just started selling, you know, merchant services, um, to like restaurants, retail, nightclubs, those types of things in Chicago. Um, yeah. And then, so that was my early part of the journey. And then I ended up, we ended up creating a uh, point of sale system. So software as a service platform. And, uh, I sold that. Uh, eventually. I did pretty well on it. It wasn't like retirement money, um, but it was good. I had a few years to, uh, you know, not work and figure out what I wanted to do. Um, And then I got into real estate and there's so many micro stories within that. So I'll let you kind of ask questions based off of what I just said, I guess. What caused you to sell this business and transition to real estate? Oh, I hated it, man. I hated my customers. I hated the business, like my employee, like it was just a bad thing. It was what I was explaining to you, man. Um, I, we didn't plan whatsoever. My partner didn't see like still probably to stay the same person doesn't see like any value in being setting your intentions, setting up expectations up front, setting goals, meeting on an annual basis, meeting on a quarterly basis. It was just like, sell and service the, the, the merchants or the customers that you uh, sell to. And that was it. Um, and just kind of make up your own processes as you go. And so I'm, I, I don't buy like totally into the visionary and integrator stuff. Like I think I'm part of both, but in, I, I am miserable when I'm in an, like a full integrator role. And I was in a full integrator role in that, that company and also sales as well. Um, but I was totally miserable and, uh, it just didn't have the culture that I wanted. And, uh, I actually sold out pretty early. Um, 
and a lot of people ask me why, but that, that would be my reasoning. Well, the title of this show is called The Investor Frame, and you're familiar with The Investor Frame. Knowing what I know now, would I choose to opt in to this company, right? So, you know, you, you made a decent, a decent chunk of change on that. So the question really is like, you know, let's say your business is worth a million bucks. Mm -hmm. Well, if somebody handed you a million dollars, would you buy your business back? If the answer is no, well, you might be like opting in every single day. I, you had an awesome six word update a few weeks ago about like something about opting in versus like opting yeah. out. And that's the whole concept with the investor frame is, well, knowing what I know now, because things change. Sometimes we don't define the rules up front, or maybe we do define the rules up front. And then we don't, you know, our, our plan doesn't necessarily meet with reality. There's a, there's a disconnect there. Um, and so you got to be able to ask yourself, knowing what I know now, would I choose to buy this business back? And also I reserve the right to change my mind. You know, I thought this yeah. maybe was a good idea at first. But then you realized that this was actually getting you further away from what you wanted in life. And, and so you sold the business. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And that's exactly what happened, you know? And um, yeah, I just, it, it didn't get me closer to what I wanted at all, right? It was getting me further and further away every single day. And I would have never have bought that company for double of what I made on it um, if I was given the opportunity. Yeah. So then you got into real estate and I know, like you said, there's all sorts of micro stories, but like talk yeah. about where you're at today. Talk about what your business looks like today. And um, I know your partner, Tim, who's sure. also involved with what we're doing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we, so I live in Chicago. Tim lives in California. So he's my, we're 50, 50 partners. Um, our wholesale company operates in North Carolina, mainly Raleigh, Durham area. Um, we also go out to like Greensboro and the triad, um, but also Fayetteville as well. There's 11 of us total, including Tim and I, um, 10 are stateside. There's one that's a, a VA. We don't really see her as a VA, but she's a VA in Belize. Um, we have one territory manager, two acquisitions managers, uh, two dispo managers, two inspectors, one transaction coordinator. Um, in 2021, we did about 21 deals, which was like our first like partial year in business. And then our first full year in business, which was 2022, we did 69 deals. This year, we're ramping up considerably. You know, that should be over 100, I, I hope. Wow. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the current business um, where it stands today. Mm -hmm. And so how, let's, let's transition then into the solvable problem. Um, and how, how do you think about your own personal solvable problem? And how does this business and some of the other investments and things that you're doing, how does it contribute to that? Yeah, I mean, I had to write it down. I didn't know my solvable problem before, you know, we started interacting. Um, I, I mean, I kind of did. Since I sold my business, you know, obviously I got super intentional and I would ask myself, I didn't have a framework that I have now uh, with rigging the game. But I, you know, I had an idea of what it was where before it was just like I had a scarcity complex and I just wanted to make as much money as possible. And that just leads to just depression, to be honest, um, and chaos. Um, so after I sold my company, I started to think about things like what my solvable problem is. Uh, and then I have this framework now, which is great. 
but this company, I, I really do like the uh, industry a lot. I love real estate and what it can do for people. Um, but this solves my solvable problem by, you know, on the left side, I would say of the barbell um, are, you know, rentals, long-term rentals for us. Um, and also, you know, wholesaling, like our bread and butter wholesaling. Uh, and then I also own uh, some merchant service portfolios still. So those still give me residuals. I, I'm good at buying and selling those. Um, so that's like reliable residual. And then on the right side, the business gives us the opportunity to, you know, um, take some risk and have some really high upside on like land entitlement, um, you know, other things in real like commercial stuff, um, different marketing methods within the wholesale company, like those types of things. Um, so to answer your question, um, it's just, it's a great opportunity. Real estate's a great opportunity to have, I feel like a balanced barbell because you have your reliable, you know, rentals on the left. And then there's so many ways you can skin real estate and, you know, try to go big on the right. Mm. So, and that's kind of what we're doing right now. That's great, man. So for those who aren't familiar with the barbell, and if you're listening to this show, you've probably heard us talk about the barbell because we talk about it every single time, but explain to me how you think of the barbell and what that means to you. So, um, you know, historically, obviously didn't have this framework. Like I said, um, I had a lot on the right side. So I had a lot, you know, when I quit my job, it was like all on the right side. I didn't have anything on the left side at all. I guess I had my wife cause she was paying, you know, we were using her salary, salary to live, but it was very small amount. Um, but the way I see it is it just gives me peace of mind knowing that I have this visual where I know I can like, I can look at, I can kind of list everything out I have on the left side and uh, I can look at the amount that I have coming in on a regular basis from a monetary standpoint. Um, that's really low risk, like really reliable. And I can feel comfortable uh, because like I said, I had scarcity issues, you know, from growing up and I just, you know, need that personally. And um, if I didn't have this visual, I was just checking my bank accounts all the time, you know, and like, that's what I was doing. Um, but now that I do, I can see that I'm actually working towards having a lot of reliability with the opportunity in order for me to have, you know, in order for me to have energy in what I'm doing and have passion, I need to have that right side as well. And so I need to have that, that upside. So I can look at the barbell and say, okay, I'm good on the reliability side. Let's try this upside stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course, obviously have my rules in place where I'm not just like betting the house on everything. Right. And so it just, that's how I see it. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It does, man. And I relate to that so much because this visual of being able to just write it out. If you guys are following along, I mean, what we do inside the, the whale club and what we learned from Nick and Dan here is, is draw an actual barbell. We're all familiar with a barbell. Um, the idea here is a lot of us either have 
a, a very lopsided barbell, like one side is significantly weighted more than the other, or you might be loading weight in the middle of the bar where you're taking bets that like, you know, as Mike was saying, you're betting the house. Yeah. If you're right, like good for you, but why are you taking on all that unnecessary risk? Uh, and, and I think this is part of our, uh, the biases and the things that we carry for, for guys like ourselves, we're really high quick starts. We just want to go. Like, I just want to jump right to uh, the strategy to go execute on. But what this, this visual has done for me is it pointed out, like you got a lot of stuff on the upside side of the barbell. It sounds like the same thing happened for you. Yeah, man, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it helps prevent me from absolute ruin. Right. <laughs> like I could, cause I am historically, I want to go hard on that upside. Right. And, um, on that right side and my wife, like we always tease, cause she's got the regular salary, everything coming in. She has no idea like what's going on in my business. She knows that we're doing well, obviously, but she's not like part of the business whatsoever. So if I just bet everything and you know, we lost our house and all of that, uh, that would not be a good thing. So I need something like the barbell and for me to be able to strategize for our family, for the future, um, and have all of those assets that are reliable on the left side and continue to build those, but also have those cool projects on the right side. Mm -hmm. And it's, ba it's about balance. Um, and, and balance doesn't always mean equal. I think that's where people get, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that like 50% should be on the, the reliable side and 50% should be on the upside. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, you know, and, and I wanted to touch on something else. Dan has a, uh, a, another equation, I suppose he's a math nerd. Uh, so, you know, it makes total sense, but he says, and I think he got this from a, a guy named Chip Conley says anxiety equals uncertainty times yeah. powerlessness. Um, Let's talk about that equation for a second here, because I think that we've all as entrepreneurs, we feel a certain level of anxiety. You know, am I going to be OK is the underlying mm -hmm. question that we're all asking ourselves a lot of times. Right. Yeah. And that question of am I going to be OK, that anxiety that we feel, it's a function of uh, having uncertainty, not knowing exactly what's it going to take to lock in. The things that we want in life, oftentimes we just get caught in this human mindset of chasing more and more and more. And when we have anxiety around that, right? If you can create a mechanism that you know that you're getting closer to the things that matter to you in life, your anxiety drops because your, your certainty goes up. Then you've got this other uh, uh, variable, powerlessness. And it's sort of, I think of powerlessness uh, as, as like, What's the tool that I'm going to use to get me there? For a lot of us here, that's real estate. Um, but there's other aspects that, you know, tools that we can use to solve our problems. But talk to me a little bit about the anxiety that we feel as entrepreneurs with having uncertainty and not knowing exactly what tool to use. Yeah, man. I mean, I know this so well, and that's why I was smiling, like, at the whole time that you were talking about it, because... Um, I've felt that for a really long time. I still, it still creeps in for sure. Right. I have all these tools and I have all of these things, but I always ask that question, like, am I going to be okay? And now I have the, uh, support of the frameworks and things like that, that we've gone over. 
uh, to lean back on and go look back at and be like, oh, you know, I am okay. And you're doing right. You're doing a good job. Um, you're being intentional. Um, you're being a good shepherd of your money, your business, other people, your family, those types of things. That's what this like type of framework and having these processes and procedures in place um, really allows me uh, to, you know, just be free, feel free, feel, feel weightless a little bit because historically in my business, you know, um, I didn't have these things uh, and I had no idea you know, what the next day was going to bring. If we were, if we were going to lose everything, you know, I always felt like the other shoe was going to drop and I didn't feel like, um, I didn't have a system. Um, so all I wanted to do was make more and more and more and more. And that just feels crappy as hell. Um, and you just feel like, uh, I don't know, your world's going to end, you know, at any time. Um, and so, like I said, going back around, like this stuff is what keeps me at peace and sane in my business and my life. Mm. Um, I, I really, really, you know, value it. Because that side of our brain that that's asking us that question of, am I going to be okay? It's not going to go away. Uh, mm -hmm. We're hardwired that way. Right. And, and it's a survival based thing. Like our brains have evolved over thousands and thousands of years, and we had to have that in order to survive. Am I going to be okay? Well, because there's woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers coming after us, right? But that's not the case anymore. And that survival brain doesn't really serve us that well in business and entrepreneurship. And so if you don't have uh, certainty and power, right, you, you, need, a, you need a system to tell that side of your brain that uh, I get that you feel this way, but it's a good thing that we have tools and systems to process this with. Right. And what I found is that instead of spinning out for like months at a time, which is what would happen to me, I would just go into these bouts of, I mean, I don't want to necessarily call it depression, but you just feel the weight of all these things. And you're like, am I going to be okay? And that voice is so loud. Um, I found that I just spin out much less. It went from like months to weeks to days. And now it's a matter of hours. And I can say, right. oh, I know that feeling is really strong, but you have the tools, you have the community. Yeah. I mean, it starts with, honestly, it also starts with like having the processes in place to evaluate different opportunities. For me, it's, um, about like having the processes in place other than the barbell to evaluate opportunities, evaluate partnerships, because I've gotten into, because I was only driven by money, uh, historically, um, I've gotten into really bad situations where I've gotten, you know, I've lost tons of money from fraudulent people more than one time. Um, and I've also had you know, a day when I was like 28, you know, our singular, our single line of business that we had at the time, we were making like 300 grand a month and a bank just dropped that line of business. And we literally went from 300 grand a month to $20,000 a month in one day. Mm. Um, and so I feel like 
those things happened to me for a reason because I set those things up like that. And I didn't have the processes in place to ha- or like the barbell and different things in place um, to have that reliability uh, and then have that upside on the right, right hand side. Um, I don't really know where I was going with that, but yeah, it's just having the processes and having this system is essential for me to operate. I want to ask you about the timer model that we've talked about because, Mm -hmm. you know, money is a big, important thing. And a lot of us, when we're trying to, you know, solve our money problems, it's like, it's like a bull that sees red, you know, it's like, I just need to get this financial stuff sorted. Um, but how important is having clarity around like what actually matters to you? You know, and I know that we've talked about timer many, you know, many times around, you know, t- uh, well, actually we added an A on the end, right? So attention, yep. time, impact or influence, money, energy, and then relationships or reputation. And what I have found is that when you can get clear on what actually matters to you, yes, of course, money matters. Like we get that. But there's mm-hmm. other factors at play here. How does that play in with your solvable problem and how you think about getting more of the currencies that you value? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm trying to get as much residual income as possible through rentals and through my other my old business so that I can have time to be able to um, travel, like that's my main thing. I know everybody, like a lot of people say travel, but, um, I want to be able to have quality time. And I've heard you talk about this and this like really hit home for me because, um, like everybody says they want more time with their kids, but it's more quality time with their kids. And that's what I want. Right. So time is huge for me. Um, and I, you know, want to build that residual income or predictable income so that I can, um, I need my space and I need to be an individual uh, within my family. Like I'm a person that can't just be with a group of people all the time, even if it's my family. So I need my individual time. And so like one, like something that's really important for me is to be able to make enough money where, you know, I can travel with my family and bring a nanny to be able to help with the kids and those types of things. So my wife and I can go do things, experience um, wherever we're at together or individually. Mm -hmm. And so um, time is like my biggest thing outside of, you know, money and reputation is and relationships huge with me as well. Mm. Well, and you know, when, when you and I were in Clearwater several weeks back, we were talking about Dan's second wealth commandment, preference versus binary. How does that play in with, you know, the idea that some people have just different preferences? Like what you're saying right now is absolutely a preference. It's not a right or wrong thing. So like, how do you, uh, how have you dealt with, you know, I guess uh, I, I say this as like, I'm a recovering people pleaser, you know? Yeah. And yeah, same. Same. The hard time is like you have your own preferences, but not everyone's going to agree with that. Some people are going to be like, hey, man, you're 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 in the prime of your earning career. You should be working, doing all this stuff and yada, 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 telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing. Um, And how does preference play in with that versus this idea of there's a right or wrong way to do things? 
Yeah. I mean, that blew my mind when I actually read it. I'm like, oh my God, there's so many things that I do because I fit like in my mind, I, I make it seem like I have to, and there's no other option. Um, and then now, now I'm just able to look at things and be like, is that my preference? Is that going to get me closer than to, to what I want? You know, some examples of that in my own life are like, you know, um, which I took, which I'm super happy I took in my business that I didn't like, you know, everybody asked me like, wow, you left a ton of money on the table. Why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and that decision could have seemed binary, but it was so bad at the time. I just used my preference or like, I just, I don't know. You, like I just left. Um, and that was a preference-based decision in, in that, at that point. Um, other things in our, uh, in my life are like, you know, we have coaches in business and we all have, like, we have, you know, we watch uh, gurus and people and, uh, on YouTube that tell us we should be doing something in our business a certain way and that type of thing. And should be managing salespeople this way and should be leading a salespeople or a sales huddle, uh, with this, uh, you know, process and some things we take, we just take little things out of every recommendation or every, uh, thought process that someone gives to us and use it. And we kind of mold it, um, for our own business and for ourselves and our preferences. Um, Ren is our coach. Ren, um, is a phenomenal sales coach for us, but we take, we honestly, we're not Ren we can't do all the things that he does from a sales perspective. Um, and it wouldn't make sense for us. And so we just kind of use a lot of what he does, but we mold it in our own way for our own preferences. Mm. If that you makes know, sense. And, yeah, it does. And Dan talks about another thing that he talks about in this book is like only innovate where you differentiate. And um, so there's, there's a certain aspect of, of he sort of gave me the permission to just copy copy things, right? If you've got clarity, like this is the type of business I want to build. Well, if you've got somebody that's built a successful business like that, why don't you just copy what works and instead find areas where you differentiate and then innovate there, right? Like you don't necessarily innovate, let's say on uh, the process to pull data and to get it into the CRM and to send it out and yada, 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 all this sort of stuff. But there are going to be areas where we differentiate with other people. And that is where we should spend our time uh, innovating and, and in, injecting our own preferences and things like this. But when Dan told me, like, you have permission to copy the things that are already working. If you don't, if you don't differentiate, stop trying to inject your own like opinions. And it's like, just do it the way that it's worked for these people and find your own ways to differentiate inside of that. Yeah. And that's exactly what I do. And I've always done that kind of naturally. Um, but now I can, you know, describe it with the actual, like, like you have, um, that's exactly what I do. And that's honestly probably what's made me success, like successful so far. Mm. That's good, man. So we talked about the barbell and we talked about, you know, you've got rentals and wholesaling and your merchant services and, you know, your wife works and she's got some reliability there. Mm -hmm. And you talked about how you're taking some bigger swings on, you know, land entitlements and different things like that. Is there anything that you have noticed through this process uh, where you are loading the weight in the middle of the bar, either where, you know, you've got unpredictable parts of your business that you're trying to make more reliable? 
or things where maybe your downside is still pretty big. Now there's a lot of upside, but your downside, you're still sort of exposed. So where have you noticed things that maybe are loaded in the middle of the bar that you need to push to one side or the other? Oh man, I wish I would have met you and done this like six months ago because I'm in the middle of something right now. I've made a heavy investment. It's a startup. Um, it has a lot of like, I guess you would say pre-orders. Um, and so it's got a lot of potential, uh, but it is super, super risky. And I'm uh, essentially the money behind the operation. Um, so I'm just funding this thing that's not bringing any income in at this point. And so I have a lot of fear around that. And I don't think I would have made that decision, you know, if I had read this book beforehand and joined the group beforehand. Um, I think it's got a lot of upside. I still have, think it has a ton of potential, but it's, it's pretty, pretty damn risky. Mm. So that's for sure in the middle for me. Yeah. And you know, what I found is I had a lot of those bets as well. Um, and, and sometimes the answer is, well, let me tell you the psyche of, of like a lot of us who like to take risks and, and maybe you can resonate with this. We hear this opportunity where like you can make a 10 X 50 X hundred X on your money. So what do we think? We're like, all right, well, let me push a lot of chips into the middle on that. Right. But the, yeah. the best part about an asymmetrical bet to the upside is that you don't need to bet very much on it. But of course, we hear this opportunity to make all this money and our brains, for some reason, are just like, well, then I'll push more into that, you know. Yeah. Um, and I just I don't quite understand why we do that. I don't think that we need to understand why we do that. We just know that we do. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's sort of how I, I noticed as well. I was taking big bets on things that had big upside, but the downside of being wrong is massive. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm in the middle of it right now. So I'll let you know how it goes. Um, I have done things though, like since getting to know you and, and the whale club and reading the book to um, de-risk my bet um, a little bit. So I've changed like the money that I'm investing. If like the business folds, um, you know, it's turning into a note, um, you know, so that, you know, the two people that are also involved in the company will be paying me back, uh, over a certain period of time. Um, so that's one thing that kind of de-risks it, but I don't want to have to go after them for the money, but that was just an option and something I thought about after we read the book. Well, that's what it is, right? Is now we got to go back through. Dan calls it an archaeological dig. It's like, okay, let's look at all the bets. Let's dig up all the places where we're making bets and figure out how to take risk off the table. That's what the barbell does. Is it's like saying, yeah. not, not like we're saying don't take these upside bets. We're just saying how do we take them with very little risk in the deal? How do we make it so that if we're wrong, eh, no big deal. If we're right... Like, fantastic. You hit that 10 X. It might mean just putting less into it. For sure. For sure. But you don't want to be in the position. Like, like I'd rather be in the position up front. Like you, like we talked about earlier to opt in opposed to opting out. You know what I mean? So like my next thing is I'll have to opt out if it doesn't work. Um, or if it's like just stagnant for a really long time, I'd rather first and foremost be do all my due diligence, 
my processes up front than be in a position where, you know, I'm already in it. Um, but this is where we're at. And like you said, we can use Dan's tools and um, kind of reorganize uh, our commitment um, and de-risk a little bit uh, if you're already in it. So mm-hmm. that's great as well. I mean, I feel a lot more comfortable now that I was able to do that. And I didn't even think about it before I read the book. Yeah, he says this thing in there. Uh, we want to take bets with the least amount of risk, least amount of effort, most amount of options. And when I think of optionality, it's it's sort of like you have all these potential options that you can opt in to, right? We're going to get to this here in the next couple of weeks and just really how you create this type of optionality. But that's the idea is we want to have like, I can choose to opt in here. I can choose to opt in here. I can choose to opt in here. And I'm going to pick the one that's the least amount of risk and the least amount of effort, because that is uh, oftentimes we just, yeah, we make decisions because of more, but really what we want to do is we want to make decisions that give us more optionality because then we have the, the ability to pick the best one and opt in versus having to opt out of things. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you'll just be so, so much more successful if you, if you go at um, problems and businesses in that, in that manner, for sure. Just opting into things that make sense for you and get close you closer to what you want. Yep. So I like to finish by uh, asking uh, for like a, a lesson learned. And, and we've talked a lot about lessons learned up to this point, but like, what would you say yeah. is, is your, you know, maybe your most influential lesson you've learned either throughout your career or, or maybe in the last couple months joining the whale club, what would you say that would be? Um, so, you know, I've got a couple lessons learned. I mean, I have a lot of lessons learned, but I go into partnerships a lot, like I told you. Um, so just, again, setting the rules as my six word update. If you don't set the rules up front, it's going to be an, it can be an absolute mess and it probably will be uh, an absolute mess. Um, you're killing your likelihood of success without setting rules up front, setting your intentions and those types of things. Um, so only go into partnerships where the other partner is willing to, um, take the time and value those rules that you put in place. Um, because you can put rules in place, um, up front, but have the wrong partner who doesn't value that type of thing, who thinks like, just like, let's go, let's get started without doing this. Um, and that's the wrong partner. Um, because it's just going to be, you're just going to end up chasing that person around. Um, and there's not going to be any, any intentionality and probably won't be successful in that business. Mm, that's so good, man. So take time to define the rules ahead of time, especially in partnerships. Uh, it's, you know, it's caused me a ton of headache trying to undo things later, trying to opt yeah. out as opposed to like, let's yeah. just lay the cards on the table and decide if we both want yeah. to opt in. It gets super weird too, you know, and like some partnerships, like if things aren't working out in, you know, like, I don't know, one person invested more money and you didn't even talk about how much money each of you were going to invest. And then the business doesn't work. Does that person get paid back more? Like, it's just so weird. And um, it just isn't necessary if you just take the right steps up front. That's great, man. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, <clears throat> hopefully everybody got a lot out of this. I certainly did. Um, and uh, we like to finish by encouraging everyone to use the investor frame. So knowing what you know now and the conversation that Mike and I just had and the things that he laid out, the lessons he you know has shared with us, what changes do you need to make in your business or your investments to help you get closer to the things that you want? Um, so everybody, thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Uh, definitely go check out uh, Mike and Venture Stack. Mike and Tim, they're just doing some amazing things. Give those guys a follow. Follow along with what they're doing. Um, and tune in next week. We're going to have another couple episodes coming out. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you guys on the next show.